Welcome to the Swisspreneur Show, a podcast about startup stories and hands-on learnings from experienced entrepreneurs. My name is Sylvan, and I will be your host. We are back in Zurich and meet Philipp Stauffer for our second interview. Today we talk about how you can successfully bring your startup to Silicon Valley. In today's episode, you will learn how you can grow your company internationally, why Silicon Valley is not always the right choice for your startup, and also whether Philip prefers Apple or Google. Let's get started. Before we get started with the episode, I would like to introduce you to SPB Startup. If you think that your company is a good fit for the Swiss Railways, get in touch with them or learn more about their startup programs at spbstartup.com. Philip, a very warm welcome back to the second Swisspreneur episode. It's great to have you here again. Thank you. <laughs> Today we're going to talk about how to move your company to the United States or Silicon Valley, uh, for example. And I want to start with the first question right away. What mistakes do you see Swiss startups often making when it comes to bring their company to Silicon Valley or the United States? Mistakes? I wouldn't call them mistakes. It's just a different, let's say, um, it, it, a startup coming from Switzerland that starts to try to establish itself in Silicon Valley looks different. Uh, looks different from the legal perspective, from a mindset perspective, and from other angles. And I wouldn't say those are mistakes. They just don't fit exactly into the Silicon Valley model. Uh, and I'm I think that's important to say because Silicon Valley is not always right, right? And so the translation really needs to happen be be between like what this, how the Swiss startup looks like in certain areas and how it could fit in or why it actually improves what Silicon Valley, for example, is doing at the moment. There are certain things that are clearly problematic. For example, the things that I run into most often is you look at the cap table, uh, basically where you have all shareholders and you see the who owns what in a, in a company. And often I see that a Swiss entrepreneur already gave too much away to, uh, to an investor. So too much. Too much mean? What does too much mean? So a, a, a good back of the envelope uh, uh, thing, th uh, framework of that is with every round you raise, you shouldn't give more, away more than 20 to 25%. Actually, ideally, a little less than 20%. And the reason why that is, if you're building a big company, you need the only fuel you have is your own currency, which is your equity. And if you give away too much too early, then you don't have enough later. Now, if you come to Silicon Valley and you want to, and you're ready to raise money with, uh, with uh, uh, let's say, a growth round, um, not just Silicon Valley, you can go raise money like in many places these days. But if you already gave away too much, then an investor will look at this and say, well, you, too much of your company is gone with an investor, which, is, which, is, which doesn't leave enough money to, in, to hire, scale the team give equity to the team, equity incentives, and have enough until the company really can achieve a successful exit. Mm -hmm. And this is also a cultural thing, right? Because a Swiss investor 
more likely will say, yes, I take that additional million dollars because it will give me, instead of 12 months runway, 36 months runway. But then you should really say, I don't need 36 months runway. But often Swiss entrepreneurs are more on the conservative side and then raise too much money too early for too long, for a too long of a time frame. And in, in Silicon Valley, like you may be raised for 12 months. And you need to have the confidence to know that you're, okay, I will be at this next milestone. I will be able to raise that next round uh, at a higher valuation. So I'll be able to get an additional $2 million for my startup at a much higher valuation, which will um, reduce the percentage I have to give away from my company. And that's how you find this balance of getting new money in and not giving away too much of your of your startup. Right. So you would sort of fill your tank with super expensive gas if you give away That's right. too much. Right. Yeah. That's a good comparison. So talking about the timing, when is actually the right timing for a company to go to the US or also more generally speaking to go abroad from your perspective? I think it's so and and this is just I mean there's different opinions about this, but we I personally and, and 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 Julie, my partner, we're very much aligned on that. Like the key is always you have to think around about the customer first. Customer centricity, right, is a buzzword. And it means that you're really expanding into other markets when you feel like you're ready to serve that customer really well, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and and when you understand that customer or the customer set you're going after, right? So it means uh, it, 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 there's no one-size-fits-all thing when the right time is because business, businesses are different, right? If you're in medtech, for example, you, need to be, you might need to be a little earlier because there's a lot of regulation you need to understand. You need to start to work with consultants and experts in, in those fields much earlier. But in general, um, a, US, a large U.S. Fortune 500 customer is less likely to buy from you if 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 you don't have an entity in the US. So it's easier to sell. And therefore I get super fired up when I meet Swiss startups who actually already have a US customer not even being there. That is impressive, right? And we just I, I, the, the, will it will be announced soon, but we just invested uh, just now in January in a startup in Switzerland that actually has uh, quite a few international customers already without any international office. And that shows that they can do it with, without, but if you then do it with an additional location in in US, for example, you get additional firepower to accelerate. Right? Um, the right time really is around the customer. You can develop in many places. Mm-hmm. Um, you can do your research in many places, but when it comes to customer, and customer success is not just closing a deal with a customer. That's sometimes the easy thing for a startup because because a customer can always quit very quickly, right? And so you want to close the customer and make that customer super successful in order to create a success story. And you want to um, build the motivation in, in within that customer and the buyer who supports you that, to talk about you and create word of mouth and maybe come to a conference with you and present together with you that this is the greatest thing ever, right? right? And you only get that additional value out of that customer deal if you make them super successful. And that is often, even in the digital world, 
still requires to be close to them. And it's, it's, it's also about just if you're in a market that is foreign to you, you just learn much faster, like, like how to behave, like how to pitch, how to sell, how to serve, how to serve your customer. You also so. have to, right? To you a certain to. degree. Yeah. How, how would we measure this customer centricity? So one point is obviously like the, the revenue that you close with the customer. Another one, if you want to have them talk about you, net promoter score could be a, a good metric. What sort of metrics should you focus on to really measure if you're getting there, hitting that sweet spot when it actually makes sense to, to go and open an office there? It can be metric driven, but I think it's driven more by a strategic, your strategic plan of um, like, we want to grow there. We need to get our first three to, let's say, in the enterprise, let's say, enterprise software, your three to five first customers. Um, and you might, um, and how do we make those five successful? It might be that as a founder, you will travel like crazy for the first few months um, because you you don't make that decision before you have one. But um, there's different paths that can uh, lead to success. One metric we love uh, for us is customer lifetime value, right? Mm -hmm. To look at how do you, how, how are you able to measure customer lifetime value first? There's complex methods and they're easier methods. You need to find the way, the path that allows you to do it effectively for the objectives you have with your business. But basically as simple as possible, but not simpler, right? <laughs> um, that is already sometimes a difficult task, but then once you figure out your formula on how to do it, um, I think it's important to very quickly be able to say who are your top 10, 5%, 10%, 20%, 50%, and who are your bottom 20% customers, because that will teach you ways on how to treat them differently. So you focus on the ones who really help you be successful and not the ones who sign a small deal and then call you like every day, right? Um, and so create a lot of customers serve, uh, uh, customers uh, cost to serve, right? right? And so you have to be very analytical from the beginning as an entrepreneur to look into these things because if you do and you're passionate about it, you can talk about these things in a narrative when let's say you pitch it to an entrepreneur, uh, sorry, to an investor, um, that investor will understand, wow, this, this entrepreneur is thoughtful about unit economics, understands how the customer dynamics work, understand how you build a customer to be successful so the customer stays with you and generates a high customer lifetime value for you in the long in the long run. That's, by the way, something I see as a weakness in general in entrepreneurship because you're so busy, you just focus around product and you push it out. And uh, there's, I wish there would be more focus on those metrics from the beginning because they can inform you how you build the product, how you optimize it. They inform you how to what questions to ask your customer because you understand how the customer lifetime value formula comes together and so that is uh, but that's not like a swiss thing that should be improved that's a general thing right in, in, swiss in entrepreneurs by the way are quite met, uh, metrics focused which i love there's always a dashboard for everything awesome <laughs> are there any like like what are the favorite metrics that you look at and favorite tools how to track them um well there's I mean, for different different metrics, there are different different tools to track. I think the key is to to really think about how do you do the data collection, um, and how do you make sure that you don't overwhelm your organization to be like suddenly you're spending a lot of time in like just doing analyzing results versus building your business, uh, and so it's a 
it's a fine balance of doing your own tools sometimes, buying tools off the shelf. Um, but then also, as you hire more people into your team, to make sure everybody knows what you're measuring and what you're trying to do. And those metrics might change, right, from time to time. Sometimes it's very important to acquire new customers. And then the next quarter, it's important to keep them because you realize you acquire too many and they're unhappy and they're leaving. And then suddenly the whole company has very quickly to shift of like, hey, maybe we slow down growth and make sure we serve them the right way before we grow more and create a bigger problem, right? So it's a very, it's not like here are the metrics and now go. It's like a constant shift of priorities in a startup to do the right thing. And, 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 but I think the guiding principle is customer centricity. Like how do we make the customer happy? If your customer is happy, you build a successful company. It's very simple. <laughs> if, if, if you're focused too much on product because you're in love with it, because you can build it, right. but customers don't really like it, then you yeah. build That's a nice thing for yourself, yeah. but then you should, maybe should do it as a hobby. <laughs> yeah. Hard truth, but yeah, makes sense. <laughs> That's actually one thing I, I realize a lot in Switzerland is like there's a lot of really cool products coming out. Mm-hmm. And... We Swiss are sometimes crazy, right? We're like, we build it 180% and then I ask, well, who has seen it? Well, I was not comfortable like showing it to anybody yet. And that we have to learn, right? That we have to learn that like you build a prototype, you expose it to as many people as possible, you iterate really fast. And and you should be comfortable that people tell you this is this product like sucks, right? Sure. Well, then the question is how do I improve it? And you got Three more inputs on how to improve it. Yeah. Um, it, uh, it all works with the customer, mm-hmm. right? Customer centricity starts with the customer on product, on engineering, on sales, on marketing, on everything. If, if you see a Swiss company that sort of dominates the whole market here in Switzerland and really has this customer-centric approach and understands how it works, how, how big are the differences to then take that knowledge and understanding to an international market like, are there big differences from doing what you do here in Switzerland compared to the U.S., for example? So you really have to go through a new steep learning curve because customers behave differently and it's a completely new market. Or how many things are also similar to what you have here in Switzerland? I think Switzerland in general is very customer-centric, right? We have a lot of very successful companies, um, medical devices, in biotech, in like many different industries, not just, let's say, ICT which is where we focus on. Um, In ICT, I think we can learn a lot from US companies on how they uh, are relentlessly just like obsessed with customer centricity and constant feedback. Uh, But I think we're not not behind. And I wouldn't even make it a Swiss-US comparison, right? Like every Swiss entrepreneur can look at what Amazon is doing. doesn't matter if they're in the US. It's like... um, And... And see what they do and do it better, right? It's like, um, I don't think it's a, it's a, 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 let's say, a US versus Switzerland thing. Switzerland has created amazing, amazing products that are way more customer focused than, than any other, right? You also before mentioned that you don't necessarily need to go to Silicon Valley or abroad. So when does it actually not make sense to go to Silicon Valley or the US in general? Yeah, that's, that's an interesting question because sometimes 
We invested uh, in Beekeeper, for example, right, which was a Swiss AG headquartered here. Uh, we led the seed round um, a few years back. Back then, it was still for that type of company, uh, for the competitors they had, for the investors they needed. It was still, uh, I think, the best decision to uh, to inc- or flip the company into the, the into a Delaware Inc., a U.S. corporation. Uh, we kept the Swiss AG, so it's still a Swiss AG. It's a Swiss success story. I always say that. There's actually more people here than in the U.S. There's 120 people, I think, now in the Zurich office and, and around 60 in, uh, in the U.S. And so, but from an entrepreneurial perspective, from a talent, a hiring perspective, from your competitive landscape perspective, you have to see it as an international entrepreneur. Um, I'm, a, I'm a big Swiss fan. I, I, I work trying to build these bridges between uh, Silicon Valley, the US and Switzerland and Swiss entrepreneurship and research and everything uh, for 20 years now. But you still have to kind of, as an entrepreneur, you have to say, okay, I'm, I'm like on this planet Earth and I have an idea and a mission. Where is, how do I best put this thing in place so it succeeds, right? Mm-hmm. Now, uh, Beekeeper is a is an enterprise co- collaboration, uh, an op- what we call operational uh, communication platform, and so that was the right decision for that for that company because that market is really just happening there, um, but it's all the competitors are there, and at that point Switzerland uh, made a few changes that now look much more positive for Switzerland to also start uh, companies here. There were also a few mega trends around where Switzerland was always strong, right? So I think Switzerland, if you look at the the core competency of Switzerland of neutrality, trust, bringing parties together that are fighting, like, and they come to, like, let's say Switzerland to negotiate the World Economic Forum, the NGOs uh, in Geneva, Switzerland always had a very special role. Um, you could also argue that there's a reason why Crypto Valley and blockchain and DLT is happening here because of the history of Switzerland as a democracy and a, a kind of a, a big supporter of decentralized efforts. We're one of the few countries in the world who have a lot of power with the states or the cantons. The US is the other one. And uh, both countries have created this amazing platform right of uh, of like around like a little less than 30 states in switzerland and a little bit more than uh, 50 states in uh, in the us um uh, where where experimentation can happen on state level the the bad ideas they die and the good ideas they pop up and eventually one state invents the best solution for that might work for the whole country and then it gets adopted, right? So it's almost a lab of multiple people being able to experiment within the framework of law to create ideas. And many countries don't work that way. You have one shot, it's top down, uh, and if it fails, bad for the country and for the people there, and if it succeeds, you got lucky. Um, but statistics tell you that that's not a good approach, right? And so I think Switzerland and the US are actually very, very similar from that perspective. Switzerland, the U.S. has certain strength as a leading, a, a, a leading nation in the world, strong military. Uh, after the Second World War, took kind of the role also as policing, uh, a kind of the 
the thought of um, democracy and, 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 and the values of it. Um, Switzerland is a small country with a similar platform, even though we're a di direct democracy and, and in the US is really not. We, we are neutral, we bring parties together when they fight. That has creates type of a different thinking where technology can can come out of, right? And so there's there's spaces in technology around decentralized computing, um, cybersecurity, quantum computing, uh, um, where Switzerland might have different ideas on how to solve problems than other countries, and startups can get started here because they are in Switzerland. Um, I think about identity, digital identity, right? And and personal security. Things like this where you wouldn't want to have, and I don't want to name any other countries, but like they're pretty obvious. You don't want to have your identity in certain countries where that trust is not there, right? Um, and so if you start companies in those areas, Switzerland might be the way better way to go than the US. When we invest we always have the opportunity to move companies around, right? And you reincorporate in different countries. Mm -hmm. And I feel like there's definitely a trend in the next 10 years where Switzerland will, will be the ideal place to actually start a company and, and keep it here. And uh, there's a few that we invested in that we actually, they're Swiss AGs and they stay here. And we might develop in different countries, um, but the, the core will be here. And it's, it, it contributes to the to the uh, competitive advantage and the differentiation of the company itself, the fact that they're here. It's part of the proposition. So really think about the advantages of the different countries that they offer you, which makes sense for your company the most at the, that moment in time, basically. Yeah. Um, still at the same time, one company that is well established in Switzerland, growing well here, might want to tackle a bigger market like the US, for example. So then it actually still might make sense to, to go there and open at least an office there. How would you then go about that if you make that decision and say, hey, now we really want to open an office in the US, we need to open one there. What are sort of the steps that you have to consider from like sort of a tactical uh, playbook point of view about how to actually open a company there from, from Switzerland, basically? Yeah. What do you look at first? Incorporation, I guess. Well, in, yes. I mean, legal things you have to decide. Uh, it's important where which entity you actually uh, issue your shares out of, right? So, is it does it is it the Swiss entity or the US entity? Um, if you just if it's in just an affiliate company in the US, that's very straightforward. Much easier than here still. Um, you, I think, in terms of location, you have to really think: what are you doing? What's your business? And then look. Where is the strongest ecosystem in the US around that particular topic, right? Because that's the ecosystem you want to tap into, the expertise you want to tap into, and so on. So it's not always Silicon Valley. Silicon Valley is great for technology, um, but we, we, for example, have an operating partner in Houston as well, in Texas, because we invest in digital health. Um, because digital health, uh, our thesis is around data and intelligence. So we invest in entrepreneurs who build their competitive advantage through different angles around data and intelligence. So data ethics, uh, AI, uh, machine learning, uh, quantum computing, increasingly so. Robotics is important to us because there's always ways to gather data. 
But for us, it's important then to understand what are the ethics around sharing or not sharing that data, which are super important topics, right, in the next 10 years. Nobody really cared five years ago. And then things happen around elections and suddenly people walk up and say, wow, we need to like look into this uh, a little bit deeper. So for us, that's a core topic, given our thesis, right? right. Now, if you, if you think about um, digital health, uh, we don't just invest in a device. We invest in a device software uh, combination. And a device often collects a lot of data. In, in, and Houston has a huge, is, is, is one of the big spots in the US around life sciences and uh, hospital systems and expertise in, in that space. Also energy, right? Um, and so think about when you pick your spot then in the US, where do you get the best fit of people and community and ecosystem to get the right advice to build your company. Um, Silicon Valley is great, but it also has big advantages. It's expensive. Um, it's sometimes a little bit like a, a, in love with itself, like a little bubble of like anything we do is great. And anything, any piece of technology that is developed will save the world. And that's definitely not the case, right? Maybe like the last 20 years, there's a lot of technology that was developed, just helped, right? And I almost, I almost compare kind of kids playing in a sandbox and just throwing sand at each other and like, okay, now I can send you my picture from my phone and, uh, and, and we can like start trading things with each other and like, but it's all like just playing. Now it gets serious, right? Now we have we have to think about more disciplines than just technology. Like it's almost like that's why the the book I recommended in the last uh, uh, podcast was Life Three which is actually written by a MIT professor uh, philosopher. So where is this going with AI? It's not a technology question only. It starts to be much more, and so. You, you, you got to tie into those different disciplines in the locations that you pick in order to find your path with your company, right? right. And Silicon Valley is not always the right spot. Makes sense. I just read this morning in the, in, in, in the newspapers that there's, there's Austin, for example, in Texas, is, 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 was always a hotspot for startups, but starts to be an interesting spot for property tech companies for multiple reasons that I'm just hunting down now. And um, that might be the right spot to expand if you're in, in smart cities or smart buildings space. Right? So choose your hotspot where you get the biggest uh, network access, basically. Once you figured that out in the legal aspects, what's next of bringing your, your company or subsidiary to the, to the US? Like you obviously also want to get some customers or employees at one point. Right. I mean, the key is always talent first. And, and that has to do with picking the right spot where you got the expertise. Um, but the talent is key. I mean, before you start anything, make sure you have the right team there because it needs to be a team. And most often, the most successful transitions internationally are if a founder decides to actually be there too. Because it's not just hiring, it's building culture. And often, if you're here with already, in, let's say you're in Switzerland with 30 people and now you open a US office, mm -hmm. Most successful ways always is one of the founders can decide to go there for six months, one year, and 
replicate that culture in the new location uh, or learn from that culture that they hire in the US and bring that back to Switzerland, right? And, and so that is absolutely key. Otherwise, you're just hiring and uh, it's difficult, right? It's not just US. It's, in, it's like general playbook of internationalization if you go into different countries. is like you, you, if you're successful with a culture um, that you built within your startup, you want to make sure that that, that culture gets, uh, gets extended and further built with the people that you, that you hire. Mm-hmm. So that's number one. And then um, if, those, if those initial hires come with customer relationships, that's always the thing you want to look for, right? Um, because the deals that are getting done the fastest are always the one where you hire the first salesperson and that person has a big Rolodex of not just I know this person, but I did business with this person and this person trusts me. So if I come with something that he or she has never heard of, she will trust me that I will make her successful if she buys it from me. And that is key, right? To shorten sales cycles and get traction fast. Uh, and most often when you expand internationally, you, you look for how to expand uh, your customer footprint. And so having that type of uh, finding the talent in sales that fits your culture and also has customer relationships to, to get traction fast with initial success stories is key. I think that makes a lot of sense. On the other side, I can also imagine that it can be pretty difficult to actually judge that before you hire someone, whether their customer relationship is actually that good. Is there any, you know, any tip how, how you can do a bit better deep dive or sort of assessment of this beforehand? Sure. I mean, I hired many, many salespeople and uh, you, you just do, first of all, yeah, you build your intuition for it as you, as you hire more people. Um, and salespeople, the good ones are good salespeople. So exactly. They you, also know how you buy into it when they pitch you, right? <laughs> but you do, you do reference, you do reference calls. And, and sometimes, I mean, in my, I worked with many Fortune 500 companies as clients when I was at Accenture. So I, often I know people in the organization and uh, um, a candidate makes a claim and uh, I do a reference call and that's, I better hear the same thing, right? It's all, it's, it's about hiring ethics, ethical people and people who tell the truth and are transparent. If there's any red flag, we're um, life is too short. Sure. But I think like that particular thing on how you hire people is um, has is universally the same, right? It's mm-hmm. it's, it's like um, you just hire for ethical people. Right. In startups, maybe by the way, what's important that you don't look for people who look for a specific role. They have, okay, you hire salespeople, you hire a salesperson, let's say, who is your first employee in the US. But you, want, you don't want to just hire the salesperson who only can do that. You're always looking for unicorns who, who, who are able to do and willing to do and excited to do anything else that they have to do, even if it's cleaning the toilet, right? Sure. And, and, and that's sometimes hard. And particularly if you hire people who come out of large organizations, they're used to having an EA, they're used to like, Flying business class, they're using to like stay at the at, at the sand reaches, but that's not what you hire for. And if you have to waste time later to kind of re-educate people on like what, what it means to build a startup, then that's a waste of time. So for those things you have to check, right? And so you're kind of always hiring a unicorn who has one 
or two core areas of expertise. Mm -hmm. um, and then are pretty open to do whatever is needed in the startup to make it successful. Another part that is also important for you know getting customers, then probably a bit more later on at scale, is uh, PR and marketing. A game that is, from my understanding, quite different in the US than in, in, in Switzerland. Alex Fries, uh, for example, called that making noise in the market and really getting the attention of uh, competitors, buyers, etc. Is there also any recommendation how to tackle the PR and marketing game once you actually enter a new market? Yeah, I think it has a little bit to do with, with the Swiss mentality sometimes of like, yeah, maybe we're never ready to talk about what we do, right? We're we always feel like we're not good enough to talk about like what, we should, what we're doing, right? I had to learn this too. Like, I grew up in, in Switzerland too, and I think it's, it's like we always want to do, yeah, now maybe in a week I'm there, right? Yeah. And so I think it's important to talk about what you do while you're doing it, even if it's not perfect yet. Because when you do it, you get feedback, you hear things coming in because you made noise, right? So I kind of agree to it. Um, you need to make noise in order to hear back from what people think about you. And it's okay if it's not perfect yet. That's one thing. And the other thing is around PR, you have to be strategic about it. Um, there's, there's amazing partners we work with, with, with Firefly, who are strategic very strategic PR people. So they're, they're, not just talk, they're, they're not just thinking about how do I get a press release about like you just raised $5 million in funding, right. but they're thinking about who you are as a founder, what you're building, how does that fit into a mega trend? What does your company and you as a founder contribute to this mega trend? Mm -hmm. How do you fit in there? And then they're storytellers. They're amazing storytellers, right? I wish I had that talent. They're amazing storytellers of like the, the story of the founder to the company, to the megatrend. And that might end up in an article that you read and you think, oh, interesting, short article. But strategic PR people, they're already thinking about a program of like a series of things are happening. And the press release you see is just one piece to build that narrative in multiple exposures of the company, the founder to, um, to the ecosystem. Right. And I think, I mean, there's great, I, I don't want to say like, there's no, no great PR in, in Switzerland. Uh, and the, the, uh, the expert PR specialists in Switzerland are saying the same thing as in the U S but I think as a founder, sometimes we have to get over, uh, Swiss entrepreneurs have to get over the fact of like, no, it's fine. Talk about it. It doesn't have to be perfect. Yeah. I mean, talk it out about it in a professional way, but it's okay. You do it to get feedback, right? You don't do it just to tell. You actually do it to tell and then get a lot of feedback. And hopefully some customers who are interested in. <laughs> of course. But also people you want to hire will call you up and want to learn more. People who want to partner you call you up, want to learn more. Competitors will read it. That's fine. Sure. That's all fine. <laughs> so it's a really important part of the whole game. It's a whole right. part of the whole game. You need to, you also, when, when you announce things, right, mm -hmm. you look, you might scare your competitors, which is also a good thing, yeah. right? Absolutely. And so you might even realize that a competitor you thought is a competitor turns out, calls you up and turns out not to be a competitor and actually a potential partner. And then you merge. Sure. Um, so interesting things happen when you open up and just talk. And PR is a, is, a, is a great way to do that. Absolutely. So we talked about the legal aspects, 
the first hires, salespeople, PR marketing. What else comes to mind when bringing your company to the United States that you should tackle? Fundraising is another thing that I could think of. Yeah, fundraising is, uh, I think fundraising is always last, right? Sometimes it's, it seems to be always the first thing, like why you come there. But actually, if you come there to just do that, I think you get a discount on your valuation. Or because what you really want to do first is you always want to neglect kind of the fundraising thing because you want to build a business and you want you you need to come across that you're doing it anyway. You're not you're not doing fundraising and then you're doing the business. You're doing the business anyway and yes, you need capital. If you tell that story then you come across as a stronger entrepreneur, right? And so um and and how do you do that? Well, you think about your milestones. Um, you close customers, you make them successful. So you do all of the things we talk about. Mm -hmm. And as you do that, it becomes a natural that in order to reach your next milestone, you will understand how much money you need to get there. And then if you tell that story to an investor in a, in a meaningful um, way, um, then they will buy into it, right? It's like... But if you come and like, um, just think, I come to Silicon Valley and it's like an open checkbooks and all these other companies get funded with like crazy amounts of money, then you most likely will not raise any money because you have the wrong approach. <laughs> that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Is there anything else besides the different topics that we just talked about that you should pay special attention to when coming to the United States? I think the cultural thing is, is, uh, is key. Like any successful company that is resilient um, basically it, or is ready to survive crisis right and there's many crises in the startup all the time you got to hire for culture you need to know what you stand for and so particularly if you go to your second office or third office it will be harder to bring like it's 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 we're all digital today and we all have like zooms and like we have video conferences whatever but like the, you can't go and have a drink with somebody, uh, a beer or breakfast or lunch uh, over Zoom. So, and those are the ones that are building relationships, right? At, at, and you do that when you build a company here. All the 30 people know each other. There's, there's a challenge um, when you grow beyond 30 people to 100. Um, it starts to be difficult after 60 people in many ways. Uh, also for me, after I've let... Uh, teams of 60 people and more you're like um, you suddenly start particularly if you build them yourself you start to realize oh suddenly you're kind of start to be disconnected you're not don't know everybody anymore you're not run into them every day you're like you, you need to start to lead in a different way and often exactly at that point it also starts that you're also in a different location which also makes it even harder and so the only way to survive that if you build a strong culture, where it's like, and how do you describe culture? It's like you're, 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 everything you do is on a, on a shared value, uh, value system, right? And everybody understands like how the company will, how everybody will make decisions when this happens. And it's a natural, it's almost in your DNA of a company that people will behave that way. Mm -hmm. And because if you have that, you have to talk less. Because, right, I'm in the US, you're here, there's a decision we have to make, and I know exactly how you would decide in terms of the guiding principles of how your value system works. 
And if that's the case, then you run into the biggest crisis you already prevented, they will not happen. And you, you, you then talk more and, and solve more around the edges that are not are harder to tank a company with bad decisions and bad behavior in the company. And, and I think that's the key. That's absolutely the key. All the other things are kind of details. How can you actually get to that good level of common understanding? One point you mentioned is, especially if you have an, a new office opening, that one of the founders should be there for six or 12 months. That's just one important puzzle piece I can imagine. But how can you actually get to this common understanding across the whole company that everybody sort of gets it? It's, I think it starts very much when the founders actually start. And some, often it's two, right? Mm -hmm. and, and having honest discussions with each other, what they stand for, what's important to them. How will they treat, how they will behave in certain situations and write it down and then check on each other. If, if we, two of us start a company, what are the five, six, seven points that are super important for you, yeah. right? So basically, if I would violate those, you would not want to work with me anymore, exactly. right? Like really important things. Yeah. And, and I write those too. And we, we discuss them and we put them, uh, we put them down on a paper. And everybody we hire, we explain those points, what they mean for us. And we don't just say dictate them, but we hire for people who agree to them, right? right? And there's ways to figure it out if they really do. Sometimes you hire people that say in the interview process, yes, they do, and yes, they believe the same things, and then they behave differently. And you give them a few warnings, hey, you behave differently on this point. Right. Eventually, culture is... The number one thing that founders have to be tough on firing people. If it's, if it's not a fit, like let's say we're two, we hire the next person. That next person has 33% of the weight on influencing the culture we have, right? Eventually when you're 10,000 people and the next person comes on, the likelihood that that person is not the CEO or a senior executive in the company, influencing the culture is the risk is less, right? So with every person you bring on when you're small, you take a huge risk of where this culture will go. Right. And as a founder, you, have, you can't have any, you can't shortcut on culture. You just can't. Even if the person brings in the biggest deals but doesn't follow the culture you want, you, you, you'll go to make tough decisions. Do you think that startups here in Switzerland pay enough attention to that part? I think so. I mean, we only invest in the ones that we feel the founders sure. realize that that's important. And we have a bunch of Swiss companies and we feel the Swiss companies actually do an amazing job in that. And, um, and we also help them in that. Uh, I did a lot of work in, in culture building in the past outside my entrepreneurial activities. But I feel I'm, this is probably one, one of the things where Swiss companies shine and Swiss founders. Now, the last part of that interview is also a bit like a comparison between the United States and the Swiss culture. If, if, if I can call it that way. So from your experience, what shocks Swiss companies when they get to the US? Is there anything that shocks them? That shocks them? Um, I think it's the aggressiveness. Okay. I think it's like you, you come there and everything is more aggressive. And I, I mean it in a good way, not like aggressive in a, in a bad way. Like um things are very fast paced right so i feel like for example right in a, in a deal in switzerland you need to you need to or in europe in general actually europe is very similar in that 
you get to know each other on a personal level until you even talk about business in 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 the US. It's fine to make business right away with somebody that you you don't know that well on personal level. Right. That's you do that afterwards, right? And so things are just faster paced. Um, I'm not saying they're not based on trust, but they're just faster paced. Um, and and there's a reason, right? Open for business. It's like it's it, it's amazing. Um, that's clearly one point. Um, Silicon Valley, particularly, is just kind of has this calm surface, and there's a lot of intensity below. And that's also something that sometimes is a little bit overwhelming for people who are coming there. Um, when you just come there for a week for a visit, you don't see it. But then once you once you work there, let's say you start your office there, and you start to see the people, how they work, and how they network, and so on. It's um, it, it's very fast paced. Uh, and initially you're shocked and overwhelmed mm -hmm. and then you get up to the same speed and then it's it's a pretty amazing uh, it's a pretty amazing thing the funny thing is the US uh, the Silicon Valley is not the US really I mean it's it's US from a uh, from a country perspective but it is a bunch of crazy people who want to reinvent the world and they come from all over the world mm -hmm. right and so it's it many 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 people, it's a melting pot of ideas, right? And as you come into this melting pot, you adjust to kind of the speed, but it's not really the US. It's a very specific place um, on the planet that, that uh, for many reasons happened to be there. Um, and that's exciting, right? Probably also one of the reasons why you live there nowadays. I'm spending... A lot of time in Switzerland, uh, more and more, because I really feel uh, Switzerland, with the next wave of technology in the ten years, mm -hmm. in the next ten years, what Switzerland stands for. There's a, an amazing opportunity here, and we, I think, we talked about this in terms of the the brand values and the core competencies uh, competencies of, of of Switzerland and what it and its history, right? Mm -hmm. And so, I'm I feel like. I really feel like home as much as I feel home in Silicon Valley because I spend like almost three months a year like here. On the other hand, there's also still some work to be done, especially also on a political level. So from your perspective, what can uh, the Swiss political system still do or improve to support startups in a better way here in Switzerland? Yeah, I think there's, I mean, if I compare to 2001, there's there was an amazing path right for entrepreneurship in Switzerland. I think there's many people who want to do the right thing, which is super exciting to me. I mean, now I'm here like literally every three months, so for me, it's harder to see the progress because it's like if you see the kid of your friend every year, you're like, whoa, sure. how much did you grow up, right? <laughs> so earlier in my life, I came here maybe twice a year or once a year, mm -hmm. and for me, it was always like, wow, all of these things happened right and around entrepreneurship and innovation and and the support for for entrepreneurs so i think there's we are on an amazing path however other countries are too other european countries and i'm often involved in silicon valley for example around the immigration like the talent crash right mm -hmm. like many entrepreneurs who actually look at switzerland as well to maybe come here and start the companies here because of EPFL or ETH or, or other reasons. Um, and then they pick, let's say, uh, the Netherlands because it's easier to hire or bring parts of your team there too in easier ways. 
And so we, I think we have to clearly solve problems around uh, hiring talent and bring qualified people to Switzerland to mingle them with people who live here and like build, keep building these pockets of expertise in certain technologies areas where we can succeed on a global basis. So that's one thing. The other thing uh, on taxes, I think it's if you look at tax frameworks on how people who take risk put everything they have, their time, their money, their families into one bucket to start something big that eventually will create a lot of jobs, hopefully, should have an incentive to start that from a tax perspective. And I think Switzerland's tax system, uh, and, and of course we have like uh, a lot of different flavors within the cantons, um, the mindset should be how do I make it easier for people who take that risk to create jobs? It's like, yes, we, we, we need to get taxes, but if we take too much taxes of the people who take all the risk initially, then maybe all of these other jobs are not created and in a long ter- on a long-term basis, the tax revenue will be lower. Mm-hmm. So the mindset of like, like what is the, the, the net present value of taxes over a long period of time with all these jobs that those people who take this initial risk is created um, uh, or, or the risk that they're taking, that's how, how I would think about taxes. And I think the system today don't works that way, mm-hmm. right? It's, oh, you have, you started a company and uh, you, for example, your shares are now worth much more, therefore you have to pay taxes yeah. on that, right? Whereas the bigger story about what, what's Crazy. happening. Yeah. And so I think there's, there's clearly on taxes, there has, a, has quite a bit of things have to happen in order to be competitive internationally. Um, then on research, I think we are world class. I mean, there's I couldn't be more excited about ETH, EPFL, Fachhochschule uh, in the Schweiz. We 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 got so much; it's almost overwhelming, right? Of course, the Chinese more PhDs graduate, but if you compare it to like the size of the country and the quality that comes out of it, it's incredible, right? We have to be better around helping the fundament, the, the, the basic research we do to commercialize it. I think there's a gap there and better define and prepare commercialization as well. That's one thing where Switzerland is, is a little weaker. Everybody says that, okay, there's amazing commercialization talent in the US and we kind of, we can't sell, <laughs> yeah. which is true. But on the other hand, um, that gap is not a gap that can't be so you can close it, yeah. You can close it, right? And and we do that with every startup we fund, right? We exactly. we work on that, right? And that's that's something that can be solved. Yeah. The other problem would be much harder if we wouldn't have amazing universities and we wouldn't have this capability of of capacity to bring all these talented people into the the, the next generation technology areas. We would have a problem. Right. There's nothing to commercialize, so we're in a good spot. There's like. <laughs> Easy problems to solve. Now, let's also quickly flip the coin. Is there anything that the US companies can learn from the way of doing business in Switzerland? Absolutely. I always, sometimes I come to Switzerland, everybody asks me, how can we replicate Silicon Valley in Switzerland? I was saying that this makes no sense. There's, there, is, there are historical uh, society reasons, legal reasons, all kinds of reasons why certain things happen in a certain spot on the planet, right? So the much better way to think about it is Silicon Valley is yours. You can go there anytime if you want, right? 
So you go there and you, you take the, the positives, what it has, and you try to avoid the negatives, mm -hmm. and you take the positives of Switzerland, what we have, and you try to mitigate the negatives, and you put both of it together and make one plus one equals five. Right? That's kind of the... That's what we're trying to do with our, with, with our investments, with our startups. Even if I don't invest or if we don't invest as a firefly, I always help any entrepreneur uh, try. Like, they only has 24-7. But um, it is really a, a, about Switzerland has a lot of um, qualities that are missing in, in Silicon Valley. And, and for example, the thoughtfulness about certain technologies and the depth is, I feel, much deeper here. It comes a little bit with the negative of everything is over-engineered to 180%. Sure. But in let's say in certain areas, that is a competitive advantage if you don't, if you don't overdo it. Uh, enterprise technology, cybersecurity, where the, the failure of your technology has big implications, that is a big advantage. And... Um, sometimes compare it like sometimes in the US you run into entrepreneurs that are very good in selling mm -hmm. then you do the decisions you look under the hood and there's not much there and then you you have a Swiss entrepreneur pitch and, and you feel like well the car doesn't look that cool but then you look underneath and there's an amazing engine right and you know that car will go really far right. and I think the combination of that is a, is is um, or the comparison of that is is very interesting I think there's, we clearly undersell ourselves, right? And the 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 quality of the technology, the code, uh, the thought that goes into it, sometimes is much higher. And I think Silicon Valley can learn from that. There's a lot of superficial stuff sometimes. <laughs> sure. So in order to end the episode, I prepared six rapid fire questions for you. I give you a choice of two options. You just have to choose one of them and then quickly explain in one sentence why you actually made that choice. Okay. Are you ready? <laughs> yeah, I hope. <laughs> Perfect. We'll see, I'm sure. So the first question, nonprofit or for-profit? Uh, for-profit, but proof that impact can work while making profit. Uh, that makes sense, as if we have heard in the first episode. Financial wealth or happiness? Happiness. Why? Because um, financial wealth, you can't buy happiness. Um, and wealth is too much. You don't need much for, uh, for happiness, I think. Small 10 people or big 100 people teams? Small teams. IPO or trade sale? IPO. Why? It might be a bigger exit. Sure. Home or international? International. Why? Because home is part of it. International is the world. Switzerland is part of it. I think it's important to see the context of Switzerland in the world. And I'm a big Switzerland fan, but I like to see it in the context of international. That makes sense. And the last one, Apple or Google? Mm, now I make friends. <laughs> Apple. Because, Apple. Because I think Apple comparing all the companies that deal with data right now, Google, Facebook, Apple, Amazon, I feel like Apple is the adult in the room and has the strongest point of views and push into the right direction. There also seems to be a bit of a stronger mission in terms of 
data protection, etc., behind what they actually do, right? Right. Doesn't mean the others will follow, sure. but I think they're the leader right now. Philip, thank you so much for your valuable time. It was a pleasure talking to you and hearing all the great insights and stories. We wish you all the best for Firefly Ventures and also for you personally, and hope to see you again soon. Thank you so much. Anytime. Thank you very much for listening to today's episode. If you enjoyed the content, we would be thrilled to receive your rating on Apple Podcasts. That way you not only support Swisspreneur, but also help other entrepreneurs discovering the show and finding more valuable information on how to run their businesses. Next week, we will already be back with an all new episode of the Swisspreneur Show. So we hope to see you again then for a new episode. <music>